Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we offer resources to equip you and stories to inspire you on your adoption journey. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Welcome to this month's mailbag episode, where we answer your questions. Our first question today is, I feel pretty confused about consequences and connected parenting. When do you give consequences in your home? I've typically not given a lot of consequences when my kids are operating in fight or flight, but I'm starting to think that maybe I should. I would love to hear if and when you give consequences in your home, and if you don't, what does it look like? How do you handle inappropriate behavior, disrespect, etc.? I love this question. I answer this question for parents all the time inside our coaching programs. It makes sense in my head, so hopefully I'll be able to say it here on the podcast in a way that makes sense. I think the first thing I would say is we have to play a little bit with the semantics because a lot of times people are using consequences and punishments interchangeably. We want to be clear that for our discussion, consequences aren't necessarily punishments. And really, I think to that end, The connected parenting model doesn't support using punishment as a way to convince our kids to change their behavior. That being said, I think connected parenting often gets a bad rap as being too permissive, that we are letting our kids get away with things because we don't use punishments as a way to correct behavior. One of my most favorite quotes from Dr. Purvis talks about this balance of structure and nurture, um, which I think is actually going to be a theme for today's episode. All the questions seem to be running along this theme of how do we balance structure and nurture. But she would say that if we give our kids nurture when they need structure, right, to work too connected, not too connected, that's probably not a thing, but we're too kind, too understanding for the behavior, then we inhibit their ability to grow. But if we give structure when they really need nurture, so if we're maybe punitive when really they need us to understand what's going on in their nervous system, then we inhibit their ability to trust. And so there's this fine line of having both a structured response and a nurture response And I would claim that you can actually find a solution to every situation that is both high structure and high nurture, that we don't have to sacrifice one for the other. I think you make a really good point, Melissa, that really so often we, many of us were raised in a traditional parenting model that was punitive in nature, like you do this, and this is the punishment you get. And we have to sort of wrap our minds around the fact that what we're working toward is secure attachment for our children, and that our children are coming to us from a place of, I don't know, sort of deficit, you know, that they did not have secure attachment. And so we're working, we're not starting on a level playing field with children who've been born to their parents and have been with them always. It's different. And so we have to remember that 
when we are trying to move our children into more positive behavior, we want to keep that relationship at the center. So that means, like we've talked about it, I know it's it's kind of basic, but we don't send our kids away for time out. We bring them close because, you know, we want them to know that we are trustworthy. And if they can't manage their behavior on their own, we're going to bring them closer so that we can help them manage their behavior. So it's really a very different way of thinking about consequences for behavior. So, I mean, I think I tell the story in The Connected Parent about our daughter uh, one time was being very um, unkind to her siblings and trying to control them and and kind of bullying behavior. And so for a whole day, she had to stay by my side. And when I was in the kitchen working, she had to keep her finger hooked through the belt loop of my jeans and just stay by me. And it actually, in a way, it met a deep need of her heart. I mean, let's be honest, mom's attention is pretty, pretty good. But it also, I think, reminded her that I'm actually here for her, but I'm also not going to let her hurt her siblings. So it's just really a different way of thinking about it. It was a consequence in a sense of her behavior that she had to stay close, but it was also a meeting of her need that she was not able to manage on her own. Yeah. And I think the important part about that is the action isn't as important as how we deliver, how we talk about the consequence in this case, right? So if you had said to your daughter, um, well, if you're going to treat your sister that way, then I guess you can't be trusted to be left alone. And so you better get over here. And I don't want you to move one inch away from my body. You need to be with me where you can touch me at all times. Right. And I, I know how to do that response really well. <laughs> Maybe if you notice. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it just sort of rolled off your tongue there, Melissa. I know. <laughs> but right. If I put my parent coach hat on and I, mm-hmm. you know, and I say to a parent, like, we have to, that's high structure. That is really high structure to require your child to be with arms within arm's reach of you at all times. And so if we're going to raise the structure that high, we have to raise the nurture, you know? And so we might say something more like, man, I can tell you're having a really hard time controlling your big emotions around your sister. And it is not okay for you to treat her that way. Your behavior is telling me you need someone to help you make better decisions. And Mm -hmm. so I have a lot of things I need to do today, but I also have some really fun things that I would like to do with you. And so we're just going to stay close all day for the rest of the day today. You and me, we're going to be buddies and I am here to help you keep your body regulated so that you don't feel like you need to treat your sister that way. Well, and the truth is when you keep a child, I mean, we call it keeping a child in hand. When you keep them that close, there are bound to be really humorous moments like cooking in the kitchen together. Like basically she got an entire day by my side, which just doesn't happen very often in a big family, you know? So I think it was very powerful and it felt like a very connected response because it was about the relationship. You know, I was not saying she was bad. I was saying, hey, I think you need a little support and help here. And let's be clear that there are some people listening to us talk about that who are like cringing inside about mm-hmm. having to be that close with their child who rubs them the wrong way and who isn't maybe super fun to be around and where 
the child may not be like, oh, sure, mom, I'm so excited to spend the whole day with you, right? <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the response I got. <laughs> Where you might get, I hate you, you know, I don't want to spend all day with you. You can't make, you know, whatever that that mm -hmm. whole situation is. And so I think that's where there's a part on our side of the fence that, and we talk a lot about this when we talk about overcoming black care and reclaiming compassion for ourselves, that we have to, one, have started to or dealt with why our kids know how to push our buttons. You know, what mm -hmm. are we bringing to the table that makes when they say, I hate you or the worst mother. Yeah, yeah, all of that. And we know that they're saying it out of anger. And yet somehow, sometimes it still like pierces our soul. Like, do we have unresolved doubts of whether we are worthy to be mother? I mean, there's so many things, right? Mm -hmm. It could be so many things. Our nervous system has to be in really good shape to be able to regulate ourselves in a moment like that and offer our regulation to our child in a way that is pro-relationship and not angry and hurt and frustrated and sarcastic and all of those other things. So I just want to recognize that it's easy for us to say it and to tell the story. And it's we recognize that it's an entirely different thing to do it. And yet it's still so important because when we can do those really hard things in parenting, that's when the tide starts to turn for our relationships with our kids. Yeah, I have an example of that where I had a therapist tell me I needed to spend maybe 20 or 30 minutes, I don't remember, a day rocking one of my children. And when it was imposed upon me by the therapist, I mean, it's a great idea, but my nervous system was pretty fried and it felt extremely difficult because it was so difficult for me. My daughter could sense it, you know, like her nervous system could sense my nervous system and I don't think I really had the wherewithal to do it at that time. It, I needed my nervous system to be more um, in a healthier space. All due respect for all the beautiful, wonderful professionals out there. But this is where we have to remember that as professionals, and even for us now as we coach parents, we have to remember that it's really easy to know the right thing to do. And yet, we are not living in someone else's home, in someone else's life, in their body, you know? And so, you know, parents, we we know that you are doing the best you can. You have, you have to kind of take good care in order to do this kind of parenting. And Dr. Purvis called it investment parenting because it is a serious investment of pretty much every resource in your life from time to energy to money to everything, your health, all of it. So I think that's a something to remember, though, is as we're thinking about dealing with our kids' challenging behavior, if we're coming to it from a place of our own incredible fatigue, our own dysregulation of our nervous system, we probably are going to need some help from people either outside of our family. It could be your, your parenting partner, your spouse. It could be someone else. It could be that you're going to need some help in order to do this kind of parenting. In fact, most certainly you will. This is beyond what what regular parenting requires of us. So you're going to need a therapist. You're going to need a good friend. You're going to need respite. You're going to need a lot of help. Here's a similar question that we got this week as well. What do we do when the simple act of setting a boundary is a guarantee of conflict and disrespect? Oh, I can see so many parents saying, yes, yes. What do we do? 
Yeah. Yeah. And we need to set boundaries, right? There, we can't let our kids, we are the parents. We are not advocating that the act of understanding the impact of trauma and early adversity on our kids' nervous system excuses their behavior or allows it. Again, I'm always thinking about high structure, high nurture. And so I think the really short answer is it's okay to keep the boundary, even if our kids have really big feelings about it. And the high nurture piece is validating that it might be really hard. Whereas high structure, high structure, which is where I tend to land, you know, Mm -hmm. we tend to be like, you know, you know, this is the boundary. I don't know why we're having this discussion again and again and again, or why you can't seem to get on board with it. Uh, I think, you know, we have two main paths that we take parents down to reclaim compassion for themselves, which, you know, we just covered a lot on how hard this journey can be on our own nervous systems, but also to reclaim compassion for our kids. And so I think it's easy when our nervous system's already on edge and then are, it's like death by a thousand cuts. Like mm-hmm. we've had this boundary that's it's the same every day and our kids constantly fight us on it, that it's easy to tell us ourselves the story that they're just trying to be a pain or why do we have to have the same conversation again and again and again? And so I think the other piece of that, the reclaim compassion for your child is really understanding how challenging boundaries are for a nervous system that has come from early adversity. Every time I read a a new book about this, I'm just finishing up a book by Dan Hughes about the like neurobiology of attachment focused therapy or something like that, right? And I'm reading through and it's stuff that I know, even just the science of how our kids' nervous systems are shaped by their early experiences gives me renewed compassion for these behaviors that it's tempting to call annoying, obnoxious, defiant. Defiant, right, right. All of those things. Well, and I think the high nurture part of that is that when we give the boundary and we know it's really hard for them is to have empathy and say, yeah, I know this is really hard. It's hard for you to have to take your bath after dinner. And I know that you really don't want to, but hey, why don't we get these toys? We're going to put them in the tub, you know, whatever it is, you know, try to have empathy for their response because what we really want is for them to stop complaining, right? And just do it because every night you have your bath after dinner, whatever it is, you know, but our kids need, they need our empathy because again, it's about the relationship. It's about connection, but that doesn't mean we say, oh, you're really unhappy. Okay. You don't have to take a bath. No, it's, oh, you're really unhappy. I know it's hard. And let me help you take that bath. Yeah, I think the other piece, especially for older kids, but I I think really for kids of all ages, is sometimes because it's uncomfortable for us to manage that reaction again and again and again, we may overcompensate and maybe escalate the situation either by being overly empathetic or overly dismissive. So there's like this fine line where you can empathize and say, I know it's really hard. And then maybe back off for a little bit or do something Mm -hmm. connecting or distracting. Like if we're trying to convince our kid 
that we empathize, but still push them towards the thing, especially if it's a, if it's an action we need them to take, then they're likely to dig their heels in deeper and deeper. Um, mm. I know when we were dealing with this with one of our kids and it was like the, it was more of like a teenager perpetual, like asking, asking, asking for the same thing over and over, you know, like, can I have this? 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 Our therapist would say like simple answers. Like they're at that point, they're trying to engage you. Their nervous system is looking for a, a dopamine hit, a fight, a argument. Right. And so you want to do the best that you can to acknowledge, but with the, adding the least amount of fuel to the fire. Yeah. And well, Dr. Purvis talked about that using as few words as possible, because also when your child is activated like that, again, their brain isn't processing auditory input very well. So really few words just, and I think as much as possible, maintaining our calm. One of the things as parents, especially if we're dealing with kids who are really, really volatile, our nervous systems get really pretty activated and we really don't want them to blow up, right? Like I know honestly in myself, there's been, there have been many, many times where I would rather not hold my child to the boundary because I don't know if I have it in me to deal with their big, big emotions. And so again, this is about taking good care of ourselves so that we can tolerate our children's displeasure, you know, and we're all wired differently. Like, you know, Melissa, you're more naturally high structure. I'm more naturally high nurture. I'm a deep, deep feeler. You're a deep, deep thinker. So we're, you know, we're different, but it is hard for me to handle my children's anger and their unhappiness. And I have to work really, really hard to keep myself regulated in order to have the capacity to deal with their displeasure. Because, you know, with my original crew of kids, their unhappiness was like within a relatively normal range. The displeasure that my kids who came from a lot of adversity, some of them, I mean, like it was very, very big. I mean, we talk about these big, big rages. You got to be able, we, I have to be able to tolerate it in order to hold that boundary. And so that is the work I have to do on my side of the fence. It's not about my kid. It's about me. Yeah. I think the other thing just to add here, every time I share this, someone has a light bulb moment. So our kids need us to, even though they're not going to say it explicitly, need us to be in charge, like a calming kind in charge. And I think sometimes when their really big behaviors cause us to go, oh, maybe I should overcompromise or raise the nurture, you know, too high without that structure, then we are non-verbally communicating that we aren't strong enough and big enough to handle their big feelings. And then all of a sudden in this, in this narrative, their big feelings, which it seems like they're in control of them, but sometimes they're, most of the time they're not, their out of control feelings now are driving the ship. And even though we may be giving them what it sounds like they're asking for, that is signaling to them, your big feelings are what are really in control here. And we know that 
their big feelings feel a little bit out of control. And so that whole situation can actually help them cause them to feel even more unsafe and more out of control than if you kind of can hold this container of, I know this is really hard and you can rage, you can kick walls, you can, you know, but we have a safety plan and I'm holding to this thing that I thought about ahead of time and feel strongly about. Um, and again, we don't want to create unnecessarily control battles. And so we have to be really sure before we set a boundary. So that should, we should have said that first, right? Like, yeah, be so, you know, be smart. Don't set ridiculous things. Like choose the important things, right? But once you set it, you really want to communicate to your child. I'm strong enough, stable enough. I'm the anchor in your storm or the lighthouse in your storm or whatever, you know, whatever metaphor works for you to hold space for whatever your reaction is. And I'll, I'm here to co-regulate you and we'll get out of this together. One thing we talk about in our book, Reclaim Compassion, is choosing a scripture or a quote that is um, very calming to you, that gives you helps you remember your sure foundation of, of Christ. And sometimes when you might be inclined to want to avoid the conflict because you're not sure you can face the storm that is going to hit, it might help to have that anchored really firmly in your mind so that you can speak it to yourself, you know, just in your mind. Like when I think of it, like my kid, it's, it's going to become like this huge tumultuous storm, you know, just remember that when the disciples were in the boat and the huge storm came, Jesus said to them, peace, be still. So maybe you want to repeat to yourself and just picture in your mind, peace, be still. Or maybe um, saying something simple like, I am deeply loved. Or I'm a good parent doing good work. Whatever it is that reminds you of who you are and is calming to you, really work on getting that anchor deeply in yourself so that it can be a calming phrase to remind you. Because when you are stressed and dysregulated, you're probably not going to remember really long, complex Bible verses that you've memorized. So um, keep it really simple. Have something that you can call to mind, uh, some truth that is going to help you. Do you have one, Melissa, that you turn to when things are rough? I was just thinking like even things that we can say to our kids, like you are deeply loved or mm -hmm. even I think sometimes we need to just remind ourselves this too shall pass or we're going to be okay or mm -hmm. we are going to be okay saying it out loud so you can hear your, your kid can hear you say like, we're okay. We're going to be okay. I've got you. We're going to be all right. Our next question is our four-year-old daughter has been with us for nine months. So far, I haven't been able to leave her anywhere other than with my husband, which she doesn't even like. If I step out of the room, she goes into full meltdown if I don't return within a minute or two. We would like to get away as a couple for a weekend in August. How can I start facilitating a healthier attachment? Well, this is a really great question. Um, I think I want to begin, I want to say two important things. One, nine months is a very short time in terms of building attachment. I know it probably doesn't feel like a short time. But in some ways, you're still very early in the process of building secure attachment with a child who came to you at four. So not knowing anything of her story, 
I think we can assume that there has been, there have been attachment wounds. Whatever happened in those four years, there's a lot of work that has to be done to truly build secure attachment. And it's going to take a lot of time. The other thing that is equally true is that your marriage matters and your well-being matters. And so it's like we have to find this balance of meeting her need for continual growth in attachment, building healthy attachment with you. And we don't want, you don't want to uh, do anything really to jeopardize that. And at the same time, you have got to um, maintain your marriage because it it's also so deeply important. So I think in the full question, okay, you said you want to go away in August. Well, we know it's February. It's not, yeah, it's about February now. So you've got some months to work toward this goal. And you probably have to start at the very lowest level possible, which is to practice with her, leaving her with your husband first. Let's start really, really small, you know, and maybe you're going to start with really short amounts of time and you're going to extend those times so that she can begin to tolerate being out of your presence and with another safe, trusting, loving parent. So you have to start there. And then over these next however many months you have, you want to continue to work toward this in a gentle kind of systematic way, helping her to build up her tolerance of being away from you. Honestly, it could be that a weekend is going to be more than she can handle, even by next August. It may need to be shorter than that because you definitely don't want to push her so far outside of her tolerance and, you know, have her increase her anxiety so high that you actually have to start back further than where you left her in terms of her attachment growth. So I think you've got uh, some time to plan this carefully and think through what it's going to require um, in order for you to leave her even just overnight. Yeah. I mean, I think about all things in structure and nurture. And so I think (laughs) the, the nurture, right, is you being available to comfort her and the structure is creating enough space for you to get respite for yourself and then also for your marriage. Even small things like going to shower, you know, when your husband gets home from work, even if she has really big feelings, screams the whole time, you know, you know that she's safe. She might not feel safe by that, but but that's a small amount of time for the nervous system to be in distress. But in a situation where all the other things are as safe as they can be, right? In a familiar place, in her home, with a familiar person, her dad, um, where maybe you even go out to the grocery store or you just run up the street for a Starbucks and come back. And so start small, five, Mm -hmm. 10 minutes. Um, Maybe you go on a walk by yourself or you walk around the house and you come back, right? And what we're doing is creating neuropathways and experiences where she's realizing mom can leave and can come back. And then you're going to grow and stretch that, right? Then maybe you can go out for a whole evening for a mom's night out. Or I would encourage you sometime this summer before August, maybe go away for an overnight so that even the bedtime routine is done by somebody different. Um, We know that in order to help our kids grow, sometimes they need to be stretched. And sometimes creating so much rigidity in their routine and schedule actually 
creates more fragility, right? Because we need to learn how to be a little bit flexible. I even remember um, someone talking about rotating where everyone sits at the dinner table, right? Like our kids need stability and routine, but if we make sure that they always have the same fork and the same plate and they sit in the same place or they eat the same food, then what we create is a lot of inflexibility. And so we wanna build flexibility into her nervous system in small ways. You know, maybe you drive um, a different way to school or to church or to the park, or you even switch, you know, which way her pillow is on her bed, you know, like sleep at the head or the foot, like if she's, you know, in a bed that it doesn't really matter. And then, you know, build up to you and your husband going, like leaving her with someone safe. Uh, I think we talked about this on another episode at some point, but what we did with our kids is we brought people in to do life with us and build friendship where they were, our kids were being exposed to other people in close, like we would have people over for dinner, the same people over for dinner every week. And we didn't leave, but these people played games with our kids, interacted with them. Our kids began to experience them as safe and familiar people. And so those are the people when we started leaving them, that's who we left. It wasn't like, oh, here's this babysitter that you've never met before and we're leaving you, right? We have to do all the steps and these like micro changes. So maybe you start hanging out with the family or the grandparent or the neighbor or whoever it is, start having them into your house to just be around. And then one day they're around and you run out to get your Starbucks and come back, right? You just have to do it in these like small incremental steps, but it's totally possible. For some kids, I think it helps to have sort of a parting ritual or symbol of connection. Like um, maybe you draw a little heart with a marker on her hand, maybe on the back of her hand so she can see it and say, okay, here's a heart on your hand. I'm going to draw a heart on my hand because even when we're not together, mommy loves you. And it's not a bad idea too to create sort of a coming together little ritual. Maybe you do a kiss on both cheeks, or maybe you do a high five and a hug, whatever it is. I think kids, they like the predictability. Of course, now Melissa was just saying, we don't want to let them be too rigid, but I think giving kids a reminder that they can see and then sort of a happy coming together ritual can be really helpful for them. Our last question is from Leah. Hi, I need advice about my teenage son who has been sneaking behind our backs to see his birth parents. They happen to live within a mile of our home. When we tried to have a relationship where we could get together under supervision at times, they violated um, a lot of our trust by sneaking behind our backs in some different ways. And so we're on a break from contact with them, but now our son is sneaking behind our backs. Any advice on how to handle a situation like this? Well, this question, I think, sort of uh, taps into a lot of things with Melissa and me. We're both adoptive moms. Melissa's an adoptee. I'm a birth or first mom. And so this is sort of touching us in all the places, you know, in terms of our relationships in the adoption world. I wish we knew more about why the restrictions have been put in place. It sounds like there was an attempt to have a a relationship with 
your son's birth family and something happened that shook that up and the decision was made to sort of cut off contact for now. As you know, and as all of us listening know, the thing about teenagers is that um, they are big enough and strong enough. They can ride their bike a mile. They can they can leave school and go places, you know, so it is really hard to impose these restrictions on your on your son. Not only that, I think we cannot forget how deep the bond is between the first parent and your son. And so I don't know how long he was with them before he came to you. I don't know what the relationship was like, but clearly something happened that they were no longer able to care for him for whatever reason. But also clearly he seems to have a need to want to connect with them. Like we talked about with our kids and with boundaries, you know, you, you set a boundary and it's being violated. And I think in this case, perhaps the best thing to do is to try to bring everybody close because your son is not able to be with his birth family within his relationship with you. He's kind of going outside of that and creating this relationship with them independent of you. And really the best thing for everyone is to have this be sort of a completely connected relationship between all the parents and your son. What we don't know is what your son is telling them. Maybe he's saying things to them that are leading them to feel very, very loyal to him and not at all to you. You know, it's just impossible to know. But I think truly the best thing would be is if all the parents were communicating So even though you want to have this boundary in place to limit or eliminate for a time this contact, I think the reality is you've you've got to open up relationship with them because you're not going to be able to control what happens between them and your son. So the best thing you can do is try to have um, some connected influence with them. Yeah. I mean, we had similar advice. (laughs) Uh, it's a little bit different, but, you know, we have young adults now and some of them have been in relationships that we didn't particularly feel have really <laughs> warm and fuzzies about, you know, our therapist said similar things like my instinct was to say, you can't do that, or we don't advise it, or these are all the reasons why it's a terrible idea. You know, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get hurt, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she said, that's probably not going to go the way that you actually want it because of, because my definition of success at that point was really about manipulating behavior, you know, that our child would behave differently in a, in a relationship or towards another person. And she was like, bring, bring them all close is really what she said. Like the things that you're the most afraid of will happen regardless. And some of the things that you're worried about what's being shared and what kind of relationship they have and what she's telling them about you and all of that, like that can't happen when you're all so close. It's like almost like potential triangulation around, you know, what your child might be saying to another family or birth family and what they're saying about that family to you, all of that stuff. Like you can eliminate a lot of that if you cut out the middleman and if, you know, and maybe, the communication with the birth family, or maybe they don't communicate in the way that you would like, or maybe that's where the trust was broken was in that communication. 
But I think speaking as an adoptee and, you know, Lisa, you as a birth parent, I think we always encourage families that as long as it's safe, the definition of success is that there's contact in some way, shape or form. And, but kind of the most that you can, you know, and in this situation where you're so close, right, that unless it's not safe, and then if it's not safe, then, you know, I know this sounds really extreme, but like, then I would involve the police. Like if you're worried that they're doing something, like if your boundary is because of a safety thing or an illegal thing, then you're going to need something more than your parental requirement that your child not go there. You're going to want something more in place. But outside of those big things, I think I would, the definition of success would be how can we make this work for everyone? And it's going to take some energy and it's going to be messy and it's going to be uncomfortable. And you might have to compromise some, but I think sitting on two parts of the triad, it gives us a lot of compassion for all the people in the story and how we can make it work for everyone. Well, and it's much too long of a story to go into right now, but my son found me when he was 16. His parents responded with a ton of anger, which I was stunned by because I had held them in the highest esteem. I had prayed and prayed and prayed for them over the years, and I had no idea that they felt toward me the way they did. And, you know, knowing everything I know now, I think what I was really seeing was fear that came out as a lot of anger. And what I wanted more than anything was to have a relationship with them because I respected them as my son's parents. And I would have loved to have had a relationship with them, but that wasn't something that they were open to having. And it never did happen. And so my son's relationship with me was completely independent from his parents. And that was very sad and very difficult for him. Even as an adult, it was very, very difficult for him. And so I would just, as far as it is possible with you, I think of that scripture, you know, as far as it's possible for me, be at peace with all men. So I would do everything in your power to cultivate a relationship with his family so that he has the freedom to move between. And again, I know safety is an issue and I don't think you're wrong to have concerns. Nothing. I get that as an adoptive mom. I mean, I try to put myself in your place and I can I would have fear. I get that. But try as much of it as possible. I can't even say that. As far as it's possible for you, reach out to these parents, form a relationship with them. It is the best thing you can do for your son. It's the best thing you can do for your relationship with your son. It's the best thing you can do with that for them. So if possible, that is the direction I would go. And it will be messy and it will be hard. And I think it'll still be worth it. Otherwise, I think you run the risk of your, of your son feeling like he has to choose. And that's just not a position we ever want our kids to be in. But it also may not go the way you want it to go if he has to choose. Leah, I don't, I know this is really hard and I'm sorry. And I think if you're a person of faith, I would just pour it out before the Lord. I really, really would. And Put all your fears and all your worries in his hands and trust him to to um, 
show you a clear path of what you need to do. Well, thank you for everyone who sent in questions for this month's mailbag. I wanted to close with two things. One is we answer these questions with a lot of words and a lot of advice, but without a lot of detail. When we work with parents and we give advice in a coaching environment, we ask a lot of questions and we really then tailor our response to their particular situation. And we realize that in this then you were missing that opportunity and missing a lot of the details. So if if you ask a question and our answer is way off the mark for what you were hoping for, or if you'd like to be able to dialogue on a more personal basis and get coaching around all of these things, we would invite you to join us inside of Reclaim Compassion, which is our new group coaching program. One of the things that we're super excited about this program is that the coaching and the community aspect of it is on an app, a messenger app called Volley, which allows us to video chat with people uh, and also voice and text chat if maybe, you know, you feel like you're a hot mess. But we kind of video <laughs> pretty authentic. We're all hot messes. Yeah, yeah, in the Volley app. And what we love about that is that it doesn't matter where you are, what time of day it is, that you can hop on there and get support. We have people all over the world in all different time zones, and it allows us to meet them where they are. Now, we might not volley you at 3 a.m. back, but there are so many people in the community who are willing to support you. You won't have to wait more than a day for sure to get some encouragement and get advice and get guidance for your particular situation. Um, and then there's also an entire content library that really walks you through some of the foundations of the things that we've built our answers on. And then lastly, if you would like to submit a question for our next mailbag episode, we would invite you to do that. Um, our last question where we got to hear Leah's voice, that's our favorite to answer questions where you ask it with your own personality and you get to explain it to us. So we would invite you to do that. There's a really quick little recording widget at the show notes for today's episode. And you can find that at theadoptionconnection.com slash 211. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. Our new Instagram handle is at postadoptionresources. Or better yet, join our free Facebook community at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. And remember, you're a good parent doing good work. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.